God, make some noise in this place. Man, I don't know about you, but I could sing that song all day. Isn't it incredible that God saw fit on this moment at this time right now that this group would be singing that song and there's not another place in the world that is lifting up the cry of this house just yet. But here's what I believe. You're going to hear stories of churches all over this country lifting this song up in days to come. But it's going to start right here, right now. Oh, that should wake you up, 11 o'clock. That when all my strength is gone, he is the lifter of my head. You understand what that means? You've been running a race, and you've been tired, and you've been exhausted. I'm on the third floor of my hotel. I had to go up three flights of steps. I thought I was going to die on the third flight. I was exhausted. And when you're exhausted, your position becomes this. But God will lift your head in the moment of exhaustion. had the realization that no matter what you go through, no matter how hard it gets, no matter when you feel like giving up, because I feel like giving up all the time. I don't know about you. When if I'm real honest, when I get the offer report, pastor, what we got last week, I say, Lord, you must be doing so. I don't know what. I'm exhausted. But then that moment of faith comes inside of me. And I start saying, if you are for me, no matter what my physical circumstances are, who can be against me? If you're the one who owns a thousand hills of cattle, then surely you can do something for me. And all of a sudden, this faith begins to rise up. This tenacity to believe that if my God has me, then not one person on this world or in hell below me can do anything about it. They can try, but they can't. Anybody in here have a scar? Anybody have a physical scar on your body? No, anybody, anybody have one that, 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 that's decent to show? I can't like, I don't want you pulling me and show me your buttocks or something like that, you know? I've got a scar right here on my, on my, on my knuckle from, from like eighth grade. I was in a pool party at Corey Baker's and I had braces and I accidentally hit them and blood went all in the pool. We had to evacuate everybody. 
but I left a scar on my knuckle for it. Here's the thing about scars. We look at them at times if we're not careful and think they're disgusting. But the reality of a scar is it was an open wound that got healed stronger than the original skin. And because it was healed stronger than the original skin, here's what I want you to know. Your scar is not evidence of a defeat. Your scar is evident that on, the, on your worst day, the enemy tried to take you out, but he couldn't. And I believe some of us in here have emotional scars, damaging scars, pain inside of us that we think, man, it's ugly and it's grotesque, but it's nothing like that. If it's anything, it's a testimony that you cannot be defeated because of the God that is with you, shielding you from anything that comes against you. And it's a testimony that on the best day the enemy had, it wasn't good enough. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, God, that you would do something incredible right now at 11 a.m., that you would give us an encounter with you that changes us forever. Thank you for this song and this music and this declaration that we make over Riverside, California right now, that your shield is surrounding this city, and you're going to bring revival to this church, and we're not going to have room enough to contain it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Give somebody a high five next to you. And let's get this party started. Thank you, worship team. All fired up. I screwed up my iPad, everything. Whew. Listen, I just want to tell you I love your pastor, Jonathan. He's amazing. They've done an incredible job. Listen, let me say this. I... I had the privilege of traveling. Hey, Brad, can you come up here and help me? Are you over here? Can you get this iPad set up for me? I had the privilege of traveling all over the country and, and doing what I get to do. I don't know very many times I've got to experience what I just experienced with you guys. Very few churches are open to let Sunday morning be reckless like this. We just say, come on with it. Let's do it. And it's a testimony to your leadership that they would create an environment where freedom can really happen in a church. And I want to encourage you the way that you serve your pastors is the way others will serve you in the future. And I want to encourage you to serve this vision because this is a vision. He came from Michigan, which is my arch rival in life. You need to know that as an Ohio State fan. It, it, it pains me on a flesh level to like him because I don't like to like Michigan people. But he has an anointing and he has something going on. And this is incredible. This doesn't just happen. I, you might have seen some other churches, but listen, this doesn't just happen in four years. And I want to encourage you, you were in the right place for the right time, and here's what I really believe. As he drove me through the city when I got here on Friday and showed me around, I felt this just inside of me that the first four years were incredible. But God has something planned for the next four years, and here's what I believe. It's so good that he won't tell you because you won't believe it. So step into it and just get excited. Because God is going to do something awesome in this place, and you have an opportunity to be a part of that. I, I'm here with Brad, who came up here. He's, he's from our, our school of ministry we have back home. Uh, he's a graduate. He's one of our youth pastors at one of our campuses. Brad, stand up. Wade, uh, Brad is 22 years old. He is a good-looking kid. He is single and ready to mingle. If you buy two books, I'll give you his cell phone number. So ladies, have at it. 
No, but we're blessed. I wish my wife could have been here. She's expecting our second child. We have our son, Parker James, who's one year in, in a couple months. You see him? Look at that little redheaded baby. Come on, somebody. And then that's our other child. That's our dog, Griff. He's a 100-pound Great Dane, and he runs around like a nutcase. You see a little bit of him right there. And so that's, she wishes she could be here. She'd love to have been here. You know, your pastor blessed us and put us in this beautiful hotel, okay? What's the hotel called? Is that we, the, the mission something, right? Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous, right? When we got to, I'm with Brad, okay? I'm with this 22-year-old dude, right? And I'm like in this like resort honeymooning hotel. And, and the first thing I say to Brad when we get there, I say, do not take any pictures of this hotel. Because if my wife finds out that I stayed in this place without her, myself will be outside of the house when I get home. She's that kind of woman. So what I said was, I said, what I really, I was fishing with your pastor. I said, well, what, I need to come back and bring my wife and be with your church a little bit more. So we have to set that up at some point so I can bring her to that hotel, right? Come on. Shameless plug to come back to the church. <laughs> No, but I, I miss her. I can't wait to see her. And, and, and I've, been, I've been blessed to be with you. If you've been at the conference, we've had a good time, haven't we? God's really done some cool stuff. And so I came up here, kind of a little, some of you are new, like, man, this guy's like crazy. Well, I've been with y'all for a couple days on Red Bull and Caramel Macchiato. So I'm just like pumped up. And this is the 11 a.m. service. And listen, I've got a couple campuses and we have a lot of 11 and 12 o'clock services. And I'm going to treat you guys like I treat my church, okay? The 11 a.m. service is a sinner service. Because y'all couldn't get up early enough to come to 9 a.m. So y'all a little wild right now, and I appreciate that. Today we're going to talk about how to become notorious, okay? Every one of us is known for something. Some of us were popular, some of us were good athletes, some of us were in the band, but we all have something that we're known for. And if you have a phone or you have a thing to take notes on, I want you to write down one thing for me. I won't ask you to write down anything else, but I want you to jot down one name. I want you to write the name of one person that you know who's not at church with you today. We're going to get to it later. I just want you to write down that name and keep it, okay? Write down that name. Today we're going to talk about how to be notorious. Can you say notorious to me? Notorious. Listen, I need you to say it the way it's supposed to be said. Can you say it like this? No, no. Notorious, notorious. <laughs> Ain't nobody ever does that when I ask them to do it like that. So listen, we're going to talk about being notorious, right? I was notorious as a kid because I got in trouble. Notorious is what you're known for. And I was notorious for getting in trouble. I liked the attention I got from getting in trouble because my classmates enjoyed it. The teacher didn't enjoy it, but I liked it. And so I was constantly doing things to get myself in trouble. Now, I was in seventh grade, and anyone here ride the school bus to go to school? Anybody? Y'all do that in California? I mean, I know they have to navigate the smog to get you to school, but y'all do that? And so, and, and so I rode a school bus going, big yellow machine, right? Got on the bus, and, and you'd sit there. And, and this one particular day, we had a substitute bus driver. Now, the thing about our normal bus driver, her name was Pat, she was cool. She'd let us do some stuff, like kind of push the envelope as long as we didn't wreck the bus. And so she would just let us have fun and be goofy and all that kind of stuff. But there was a substitute this one day. And here's what I know about a substitute. There's no rapport between you and the substitute. They never have to see you again. They never have to deal with you again. They will sell you down the river if need be because there, there is no rapport, right? And so uh, the sub, right when I get on, I see the substitute, and I make a conscious decision to not do anything stupid on this morning. 
I'm going to stay out of trouble. I'm not going to cause problems. I'm going to ride the bus. I'm going to put my head against the window, and I'm going to let it numb me to sleep. If you've ever been on a school bus, you know what I'm talking about. You come on, you put your head on, oh, it feels so good. Brain cells are leaving as it's hitting your head, but you just, I don't care. It's so great. And so, so I'm on the bus, I'm ignoring it, but some other kids weren't doing that. And some other kids were grabbing pieces of paper, balling them up, and they're throwing them at the front of the bus. So what do you think the front of the bus does? Throws them on back. And then they, then they escalate to erasers and pencils. And now it's like a war going back and forth between the front and the back of the bus. Remember, I'm numbing myself, I'm out of this situation. Well, all of a sudden, this girl named Tanya. The thing about Tanya is Tanya was a hood rat. I ain't joking, Tommy. She was a hood rat. I, I'm playing with you. I mean, she, she was ghetto fabulous. I don't know what to say. I grew up in the hood, so if y'all can't tell, just get ready. So, Like the country hood. I say y'all, and I'm like gangster at it, too. Tanya was a hood rat. And she pulls, as we're all, th- I'm not doing it, but people are throwing stuff. She pulls out a stolen Cadillac emblem. You ever seen a, a Cadillac emblem before? She's, she's a hood rat. She stole this emblem off of somebody. And they're heavy. You ever held one? They're, they're very solid. And she decides to throw the Cadillac emblem towards the front of the bus. Now, she has the aim of a Cleveland Browns quarterback. It's a little bit off. Just a little bit off. And, and, and it misses her target, and it's going right for the substitute bus driver's head. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. And as it's going towards it, by God's grace, it misses her head, it clears her shoulder, and it shatters the window of the bus. <laughs> right when it happens, she turns into Chris Farley from Billy Madison. Oh, my God! I'll turn this dang bus around. And she swore, we're swerving all over the road. I mean, kids are screaming. I'm smacking my head against the window now. I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, it's pandemonium. Seventh grade. Well, she grabs a little walkie-talkie, you know, she's like, and, and then she reverts the route and just goes to the school. A whole bunch of kids didn't go to school that day because the bus never picked them up. And we pull into the school, the school parking lot. The door opens. And five foot five, Mr. Yancic walked on the bus with his afro. He was white, too. It was a crazy afro. <laughs> the 70s were good to Mr. Yancic, I'll tell you that much. And he comes up, and he is madder than a hornet, right? And he says one thing. Who threw the Cadillac emblem? Now, I'm just sitting there. Because, listen, I ain't doing nothing. I'm out of the situation. And, and then he asks again, and nobody talks. It's like quiet, because where I come from, snitches get stitches. I ain't talking, because Tonya got a blade under her tongue, and she will cut me out. And I'll be bleeding in the back of the bus dead. Not that day, on another day that you ain't expecting it. Because Tonya's hood. And so I'm just sitting there minding my own business. And you remember how on the buses, the, there's that giant mirror that the bus driver can see everybody? She says, I don't know who threw it. But and I, when I look back, all I saw was the redhead. I know, racism, right? I still think I got a claim I can put on that school. Now listen, because I was known as a troublemaker, 
Mr. Yancic said, I knew Jurassic. My last name's Jurassic. People call me Jurassic Park. He said, I knew Jurassic had something to do with it. He marched my little seventh grade butt off that bus and gave me three day suspension for it. It's a true story. Because I was known as a troublemaker when I was faced in a situation that could have been my fault, though it wasn't, I still got blamed for it. Can I give you a, a kind of a reverse on spirituality with that? Some of us are known as Christians, but we haven't been very Christ-like in a long time. Some of us are known as like, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I go to Relevant. It's that cool, trendy church. I go there. But yet, really, deep down inside, we have not been Christ-like in a long time. Now, when I say Christ-like, I am not talking about you being polite when someone cuts you off in traffic. That is a part of it to a degree. But being Christ-like is not just being a nice, good person. Being Christ-like is reading your Bible and then following what it tells us to do. Being Christ-like is getting out of my comfort zone. If I read anything about Scripture, it is a continual story of men and women being invited out of their comfort zone to trust God. And the invitation we have 2,000 years later is to continue that journey. This thing would have never happened if people stayed in their comfort zone. And my invitation today as we read Luke chapter 15 is to put yourself in this story and maybe take the invitation to grow out of your comfort zone. Luke chapter 15 verse 1 says it like this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he would be associating with such despicable people, even eating with them. So you find three people in this story, tax collectors, notorious sinners, and Pharisees. I don't have time to get into it. It's in the book. I break down every one very clearly. But to be very quick about it, tax collectors were known as scum of the earth. They were people when the Roman government invaded a territory. They would find those who knew the most about their town. They'd say, we'll give you a little bit of extra money if you collect the taxes from the people who you know have money. Imagine your friend being the tax collector knowing how much you make or what cars you drive or what you have and saying, hey, you got to give a little bit more to the government. They would not be your friend for very much longer. And so you have these tax collectors who are known as the scum of the earth. You've got these notorious sinners. They are known to be partiers. They probably came to the 11 a.m. services. <laughs> and then you had these Pharisees. These were people who put their pants above their belly button. And they walked around saying, well, bless God, we're more important than everybody else. Oh, you guys are going to 11 a.m. Well, we go to 9. We're more spiritual. They're the ones who really thought they were something special because they went through religious obligations. They did all the right things. So because of that, they got to be the goody two-shoe of the class. And so they, these guys want Jesus to be on their team. They want this young rabbi to join them. And they were getting so angry that instead of going out with them, he was hanging out with these scum, tax collectors, and notorious sinners. And the Bible says even eating with them. And you have to understand that. Back in those times, there was no Chipotle and there was no In-N-Out. You know, I got to eat In-N-Out for the first time on Friday night. And here's what I know. God is still working in California. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is still making his moves through California. Because you all got something that the rest of the country needs very badly. I mean, I had an encounter with God at In-N-Out. And then later in the bathroom afterwards. I'm kidding. Cut that part out of the podcast, please. 
But they didn't have restaurants to go to. They couldn't go and say, let's meet somewhere and eat. If you were going to eat with somebody, that person went to the market, bought the food, prepared it in their home, and invited you into their home. And what you have to understand about biblical times is the only people that went to your home were family members or lifelong friends. You not just bring anyone over your house. And for Jesus to step into their homes, he was saying, I'm okay to identify with you. No, just because you're known for not being a godly person doesn't mean God doesn't want to touch your life. Here's the problem with today's Christianity, if I can step on your toes, is we're too afraid of how we're going to be seen by where we're at versus the people we're trying to reach. I would rather be seen and judged wrongly with the right intent than to stay paralyzed in fear and just gather up in church and say, okay, I'm here. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want anybody to say anything about me. I don't want to be gossiped about. I would rather be gossiped about and reach dead people than not be gossiped about at all and God look at me someday and say, why do you even think you deserve this thing? You know what Bishop T.D. Jake says? I love this. He says, if I Google you, and there ain't no controversy around you, you ain't doing nothing for Jesus. Okay, Bishop. <laughs> go there then. And what he's saying is, he's not, he's not saying that you go do bad things. I'm not telling you to go to the strip club to start a strip club ministry so you can go see some girls. I'm not telling you to put tracks and G-strings. That was a little offensive, I apologize. <laughs> Pastor Jonathan will clean everything up next week, I promise. G-string don't mean Jesus string. I'm not telling you to go do sinful behaviors, but I'm telling you that you and I have got to get something on the inside of us that has a faith that God wants to reach these broken people, and we've got to be willing to step into their mess. And by stepping in their mess, we cannot allow their mess to affect us. We have to say, I'm here to affect change. You're not going to affect it in me. Because I have the God of the universe behind me. And no matter how hard it gets, he's still got my back. Somebody's got to have that. And so you see Jesus not being afraid of how others are going to talk about him. And he's even eating with them. Verse 3 says it like this. So Jesus, when he saw the, 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 the Pharisees and their problems and their, and their gossip and their anger, he then taught with this illustration to all three groups. If you have a hundred sheep and one of them strays away... Wouldn't you, and it was lost in the wilderness, wouldn't you leave the 99 to go search for the lost one until you found it? And then would you joyfully carry it home on your shoulders? So Jesus is telling the story. And in the process of writing my book, I actually went to a farm where shepherds take care of sheep. And I got to experience what it's like to work and to, and to interact with sheep. And, and, and I noticed when a sheep strays or doesn't do what they want, they can't put it on a leash and bring it back. They're very stubborn that way. What they need to do is they have to go to where the sheep is, bend over, scoop it by the legs, and they have to hoist it up. So as I'm there, I'm in these beautiful muck boots. If you don't know what muck boots are, look them up. They're like these big old country boots. And I'm walking through all this manure and all this mud, and, and they say, okay, pastor, that sheep is not where it's supposed to be. You need to bring it back to the flock. Will you pick it up and bring it? I'm like, you want me to pick up the, the, the animal, the light? Yeah, like pick it up. I'm like, all right, here we go, baby. So I go, I'm like, easy, big fella. <laughs> and I, like, I do like a power squat. You know, I'm like, all right, here. And I grab it and I go to hoist it. Sheep need to lay off the calories. <laughs> These jokers are heavy. I picked up this sheep and I thought I was going to pull my back out. 
And I'm holding it. I'm like, wow, this is really heavy. And I'm like carrying it. And they're like, okay, come on, you gotta bring it. And it's kind of bucking and it's like not comfortable because it can tell I'm not comfortable. So we're both like doing this. It's like a weird, it's like, it's like teach me how to Dougie. Like we're like trying to do this thing. And I'm getting it back to, and I put it back in. And, and here's what this scripture came alive to me. When a sheep wanders and it needs brought back, it's not always an easy experience. I, I broke a sweat. I, I was pulling some muscles. I was dealing with the fact that sheep wasn't totally comfortable with what was going on. But it was needed because that sheep needed to get back home. And so what the Bible says here, and what Jesus is teaching, is if you find a lost sheep, then you need to carry it back. Not begrudgingly. See, too many times in church, someone leaves like, oh, look at them. They're gone. They're not in church no more. Well, I, well you know, and, and you just want to bash them. We want to make them like, well, they're, 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 we don't need them here. We're better off without them. And we want to belittle these people that God's like, I died for that person, dude. I gave my son for that person. And you want to belittle the fact that they're screwed up? Well, duh, they're screwed up. I sent them to you to shepherd them. And I'm not, I'm not talking to your pastor. I'm talking to the congregation. We're all to shepherd people. Because if we've been found by God, then our responsibility is to find others. The sad reality of the American church is we would rather our pastors and staff deal with it. And that is not what they're responsible for. Your pastor is responsible for what God is telling him. And to lead you in that, not to go around herding sheep all day. That is the job of those who say, this is my home. Now listen, this ain't a feel-good message. This is a kind of a call-to-action message. It's going to hurt a little bit. I hope you're okay with that. But we've got, and, and not just begrudgingly, we got to be joyful about the fact that we have messy people in our church. I've got some people in my church that on my own I would have never associated with. But because God has sovereignly touched me, I pray to him to have the grace to continue to touch them. Because too many times, people in church are cray-cray. If you're not laughing, you're the person. You're like, I don't think anybody hears cray-cray because you cray-cray. You just don't realize it. That's okay. You're supposed to be here. And the reality is if we just want a church of everybody just is all, we're all, per, we're all perfect, everything's put together, you will not fulfill the gospel in which it was intended to be. We've got to have some messy people in our churches. And not just like, like, oh, well, we have to put up with them, but be excited about the fact that they're here. They could be anywhere else in this world. And I believe this, in Riverside, California today, there's more people sleeping in than in church. More people are attending bedside Baptist than anywhere else. And it's our job to bring him home. And so here's what it says. He used this illustration. He carried him on his shoulder. And then verse 6, it says, Then when you have arrived with that sheep that you've carried joyfully, wouldn't you call together all of your friends and all of your neighbors and rejoice with them because your lost sheep was found? And then Jesus decides to teach us what this parable means. He wants to allude to what this means in our life and apply it to where we are right now today. He says, in the same way, heaven is happier. Say happier. happier. Say it with a smile on your face. Happier. happier. I looked like a psycho when I did that, didn't I? Heaven is happier over one lost sinner who returns home than 99 righteous who've never strayed. Now listen, I'm not saying heaven's disappointed in 99 righteous who haven't strayed. We need 99 righteous who won't stray. But you have to understand the heart of God. 
He did not come to this planet to affirm good people and say, yeah, I'm just happy you've been good your whole life. He loves them and he values them and he appreciates them. You're needed for this thing to work. We can't just have a church full of sinners because there's got to be some shepherds to help lead that flock. But what he is trying to say is I'm a God of the universe who created mankind and I love them so very much that I would send my only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now here's what's powerful about John 3.16 that many people miss. It says that he came to save, uh, he gave his only begotten son. It did not say he gave his best son. If God gave his best, it's like having shoes. I love shoes. I have 10 pairs of shoes. If I give you one pair of my shoes and it's my best pair, I still have nine more pairs I can put on and walk around. But if I give you my only pair of shoes, then I choose to go without so that you can go with. The Bible says that God sent his only begotten son. He said, I will go without the very thing I love the most. I'm a father of a one-year-old. I alluded at the um, conference that my story is, my mother had me at 16. She chose to raise me and not abort me. She believed that God can take any mess and do something incredible with it. And she raised me. She could have gave me up. She chose not to. And I never met my dad. I never met my biological father. I'm not upset. I was upset about it for a long time. But by God's grace, he healed me through having a son. And I look in my little baby boy's eyes. And I realize there's nothing that would stop me from giving my life to this kid. There's nothing that I would do to make his life better than mine. I'd give up everything I had for this child. And, and I, I was afraid to be a dad because I didn't have a dad. And, and, and when I had this child, I looked into his eyes and I said, my whole world starts and stops with this kid. This is, I don't care about how many campuses we have. I don't care about how many people came this weekend. I don't care about any of this stuff that is, that is, that is attached to this world. All I care about is that this kid has a chance to know his dad the way I never knew my dad. And then I think about God and how much more he loved Jesus. Think about the fact that this was his only son, just like mine. And he says, I'm going to give him to mankind. And they're going to beat him. They're going to whip him. They're going to spit upon him. And the Bible declares that he was so beaten that he even wasn't even recognizable as a human being any longer. And they're going to nail him to a tree and leave him for dead. But he wants to do this for them so that they can come back to me. And when that burden grabs a hold of me, I no longer worry about my status and where I'm at. I no longer worry if others are going to gossip about where I go. I no longer worry about who I'm associating with and if church people are not going to like it. I start saying, these people are what God died for. And if I'm going to love what he loves, then I need to value what he values. Do we have a young man here that I can use for this? Can you come up here? Is it that you, Christian? Come on up, buddy. I need you to help me one more time. Remember that name that I had you write down? Just look back on it for a minute. Imagine Christian, this tall drink of water on a hot summer's day. Imagine Christian is that name that you wrote down, someone who's not here right now. And the reality is they start drifting from the church, right? So Christian, can you go over in that corner for me? They drift away from all of us in the, in the 99, the flock, and they're gone. Most churches, and I don't believe it's going to be this church, 
Start going, oh, I'm worshiping. Yeah. Oh, man, Tommy sing that song again. I love it. Yeah. Oh, get it. Man, I wonder where Christian is. Huh? He must be sinning. Let's all avoid him because he's not in church no more. See, if we're not careful, we can start labeling people and be like, oh, they're a notorious sinner. They're out there. Yeah, they are. Okay, good. Let's get over it. But the truth is, someone who's mature in their faith would be worshiping and think about their friend that you wrote down. Christian, remember, he symbolizes them. They go, man, I'm worshiping. This is so good. God is in the house today. Where is Christian? Why isn't he here? Man, he needs to be assembling with us as we celebrate Jesus. He needs to have the hope built up inside of him again. And and an immature person would think, I hope Pastor Jonathan knows to call Christian. Hope Pastor Jonathan realizes with the five, six, eight hundred people that come to our church that he's going to take care of this one guy. And if he doesn't, he's probably not a very good pastor. That's an immature Christian. Someone who's done this for a little bit, who's got the burden of John 3.16 in their heart. Says, Christian, man, God, as I worship, I'm worshiping in place of Christian. I'm worshiping for him, and I'm making a stand when maybe no one else is thinking about him. You put him as a burden on me, and I'm going to worship. And when you do that, your proximity to Christian starts getting closer because God is drawing you together. And you keep praying for him. As you're praying for him, you're getting closer, and you're getting closer. Then maybe you text him, hey, I've been thinking about you. I'd love to get coffee. And if they've been hurt by church, you don't make it overly sensitive. You don't, you don't shove it down their throat. You just keep loving them. And you keep loving them. And then you're hanging out and you're doing life together. And all of a sudden, you and Christian are very close to one another. And then by the power of God, because God loves him more than you do, maybe, just maybe, he's going to say, hey, next Sunday, what about, maybe I'll come back to church with you. Maybe I want to come and see what God's doing there too. Christian, do you trust me? No, that's good. You shouldn't trust adults that you don't know. It's a good answer. But I'm going to need you to trust me right now, okay? Can you lift your arms up? Because there's going to come a moment where your friend Christian is ready to be brought home through life. Life has a way of putting everybody on their face, doesn't it? Life has a way of beating us up in some way or another. And God is doing that to get there to be a position where Christian is saying, my hands are up, I'm ready to be carried home. And you and I have got to use our strength and our power, and we've got to bring him home. Now, Christian, I have a question for you. What is your family feeding you? Because you are a heavy child. <laughs> oh, Hey, give it up for Christian one more time. See, God's values need to become my values. And God would delight in nothing else than you taking that name that you wrote down and bringing them home. And if we do that, we begin to live the gospel that Jesus intended. So here's my question for you. What are you notorious for? Maybe it is being a Christian. Maybe it's not. That's okay. You're in the right place. But my challenge to you as I walk off this stage is to not just be notorious, known for it, but to actually live it. And here's what I believe. When I encountered God at 18 years old, I saw him and I said, God, I want you. I don't know why I want you, but I want you in my life. Picasso has this statement. Good taste is the enemy of great art. Good taste is the enemy of great art. 
And the reason why I bring that up to you is because when God sees you, he doesn't see, one time when I was a little kid, somebody said to me, hey man, cheer up, God loves you. I said, big deal, God loves everybody. That doesn't make me special, that doesn't mean God didn't have any taste. You know what I realized? Thank God he doesn't have any taste. Thank God that he doesn't look at it. His taste has everything to do with, 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 with perception and, 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 and having rules and this is the way it should be, this is not how it should be. And art has everything to do with being human and being raw and being honest. And I want you to know something. When you encounter this God, he's a wild man. He will not fit in most of our churches today. But when you really encounter him and you let him touch you, you will never be the same. And I pray that you don't allow taste to dictate who you connect with. And I pray that you look at the people that are misfits in your life as a beautiful piece of artwork that God made. Because he made them human for a reason. He loves that about us. I just want to encourage you, go after it. Can I have every head bowed, every eye closed for a minute? I just feel like I need to do this. If you're in this experience with us right now and and you are very far from God. You know that. You know that deep down inside. Dude, I have, I have just, I'm, I'm notorious for everything else but God. But you're saying today, I want to I come home. I want Jesus to be the center of my universe the way that you talk about him. I want to tell you it won't come easy. It's a free gift that will cost you everything. It's not easy. Christianity was never meant for wimps or sissies. It's meant for wild, crazy, adventurous people who say, God, I want you in the middle of this. I'm going to hold on for dear life. Or maybe I'm just going to let go. But if that's you and you want to encounter this Jesus, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time, I want you to be bold and I want to pray with you. Can you shoot your hand up? One, two, three. Shoot your hand up. Hands all over the room. Thank you, 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 thank you. I'm praying with you. I'm gonna. We're gonna pray together as a church family. Here's what I believe: the furthest you're ever gonna go is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. Because in your head, faith doesn't make sense. But in your heart, you're like, jump, baby, jump. And so we're going to pray together as a family. And we're believing for the 30-some people that have raised their hands that you are going to, we're going to throw a party with heaven this morning. The prayer means nothing if it doesn't take that 18-inch journey. Mean it from your heart. Let's say this together as a church family. Say, dear Jesus, I need you to come into my heart to save me from my sin. I confess that without you, I would go to hell. But with you, I have eternity in heaven. I dedicate my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Can you give it up for what God is doing in the house today?